Amen. Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Um, On the Sunday evenings that I preach, we've been making our way through the life of King David. Um, It's a roller coaster of a life. Uh, His faith is a roller coaster. Saul's attacks are a roller coaster. And the one constant in this book is God. If you were here when I preached a few weeks ago from 1 Samuel 27, we actually came into the first two verses of 28, and we were left with a cliffhanger. David had fled from Israel because Saul had been pursuing him, and David's faith generally was pretty steady so far, but his faith wavered. He was scared. He thought Saul was certainly going to get him, and he fled to the land of the Philistines in fear, and he went there, and he convinced Achish the king of the Philistines, or at least one of the kings of the Philistines, that he was there as an ally, that he made Achish think that he had turned his back on Israel. And what he would do, if you remember, David and his men would go day after day and raid villages. And he would told Achish, he told Achish that he was raiding Israel and Israel's allies. But in reality, he was actually raiding enemies of Israel. And so it appeared that he had deserted Israel and was supporting their arch enemy, the Philistines, but he was actually fighting for Israel. Now, it's not morally right, but it was certainly clever. But as chapter 28 began, everything's about to come to a head. As you know, lies catch up with you. And Achish has to go to war, and he says, David, I want you to accompany me as my bodyguard. Now, that's a very logical request because David's been a great warrior, and so Achish wants David as a side, at his side. But the only problem is Achish is going to war against Israel. What's David to do? It's, it's a tense situation. If he goes to war, then he's a traitor. If he doesn't, then Achish will realize that he's been deceiving him all along and would kill him. What's fascinating is you read the first two verses of 28 and all of a sudden the story just stops. The scene shifts and it's like watching a football game. Your favorite team is in the championship. It's fourth quarter. There's 10 seconds left. Your team's down by two. They're about to kick a field goal and all of a sudden it cuts out and it says we interrupt this programming for an important announcement. Now it's got to be a big deal if you're going to interrupt something like that for an important announcement. What we're going to see is the scene shifts to what's going on with Saul. And we'll under, Lord willing, we'll understand why as we work through the text. But look with me at 1 Samuel 28. We're going to start at verse 3 as the scene shifts. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Those were people who Either would, necromancers would, would speak to the dead or, or purport to speak to the dead. Mediums were, were sort of uh, uh, oracles from God. They were people that would supposedly speak for God. And Saul had put them out of business is what it's saying there. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who's a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. 
So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said, surely you know what Saul has done, how he cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what's his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord and didn't carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow your sons shall be with me. You and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length to the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he, had not, uh, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In April of 1945, World War II had been underway for nearly six years, and Germany had exhausted most of their supplies, nearly all of their people, and all that was left was a bit of resolve. That was when Joseph Goebbels, Adolf Hitler's minister of propaganda, called Hitler with what he believed was great news. He said, it is written in the stars. The last half of April will be the turning point in the war for us. He was referring to horoscope, astrological predictions that he had read that seemed to indicate that Germany's fortune would soon turn. Now, how wrong did that message prove to be? As by the end of the month, Hitler had 
committed suicide and Goebbels did the same the next day. But how often do we see this, that people facing disaster and seemingly with nowhere to turn will turn anywhere they can, even to superstition, to find hope? That's what's going on with Saul in this strange scene. The Philistines have a definite advantage here. They've set up camp at Shunem, a site at the base of the hill of Morah on the east end of the plain of Edelon. It's about 17 miles from the Sea of Galilee. And they've, they've taken this area so that they can fight on flat ground and they can use chariots and they can control the trade route from south to north and cut off Saul from the northernmost tribes of Israel. In other words, politically, this is a terrible situation for Saul and for his kingdom. And Saul's desperate. In fact, that's one of the three things I want you to see. In verses 3 through 11, we see Saul's desperation. In 12 to 19, we see Saul's doom. And then in 20 to 25, we're going to see Saul's distraction. So Saul's desperate here. We get a hint of that right at the beginning. Verse 3, you get this insertion that says that Samuel has died. That's not a death notice. We got the death notice three chapters ago back in chapter 25. It's an explanation. You see, Samuel had been the messenger, the go-between between God and Saul. Samuel was, functioned as a prophet and brought Saul messages from the Lord. And without Saul... And this looming military disaster on the horizon, excuse me, without Samuel, Saul is desperate for hope. And so look at verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Now, that's not as much a commentary on the might of the Philistines as it is the condition of Saul's soul. He doesn't trust God. In, In fact, this This geographic area should have been a reminder to him, an Ebenezer of God's faithfulness. Not too far away, back in Judges 4, Barak and his hastily gathered army had overthrown the Canaanites. And in Judges 7, in a similar area, Gideon's weak militia had overthrown the Midianites. But that would require faith, and Saul had none. So he couldn't take courage. He was greatly afraid. And if things weren't bad enough, they're about to get worse. Look at verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord didn't answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now that middle one's really important, Urim. It's one of the three ways mentioned, but it's a reminder to us about the condition of Saul's soul, and it helps us understand why God didn't answer him. See, Urim were the lot held within the high priest's ephod, by which God gave messages to the priests in the Old Testament. Well, why can't he just go to a priest? Because back in chapter 22, he killed all the priests, didn't he? And, and the one remaining priest, Abiathar, had taken the ephod to David, so there are no Urim. He had silenced all the priests in his hatred, and God is now silent towards him. This brings up an interesting question. Doesn't the Bible say that God answers those who call upon him? You know, you just think of Paul quoting Joel 2, where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And doesn't Saul need saving here? Why is God neglecting him? 
I think the evident explanation is that while Saul went through the external act of appealing to the Lord, his heart never moved one inch towards God. There was no sign of faith or repentance. Remember, Saul's been very good at what appears to be repentance. He's been very good at what appears to be contrition, but he always goes back on it. And we need to remember that prayer without faith and without repentance is just an effort to manipulate God. That's what Saul's doing here. There's no hint in Scripture that Saul ever genuinely repented. Now, just a word for those of you who perhaps feel that you have fallen away. And you wonder if you might find yourself in a similar place to where Saul is. That your heart has become so hard towards God or you have sinned so greatly that God will no longer listen. King David will later tell us in Psalm 51, as he is coming out of the worst time of his life, his sin with Bathsheba and the adultery and the the, um, murder uh, that he covered it up with, he says in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Saul didn't have that. David did. In fact, if you ever compare David and Saul side by side, you see they were actually very similar in some of the the sins and scandals they were involved in. But the difference was one was repentant. David was repentant. Saul was not. And so as Saul cries out, all he hears is silence. And so he looks for a plan B. In his desperation, he goes to his men And he says, I need you to find a medium for me. Now remember, we were just told that Saul outlawed that. You weren't allowed to be a medium. You weren't allowed to use necromancers, people who conjured up the dead. And and so this is a foolish request because Scripture prohibits it. Saul prohibited it. But now in his desperation, he turns to the voice of the dead because he can't hear the voice of the living God. And so he says, where's a medium? And his men say, oh, right there at Endor. It's interesting. He doesn't seem to be much of a king because his ban hasn't prevented his men from knowing where this medium is. And he travels to her. He went in disguise, perhaps, so that he wouldn't be seen as a hypocrite. But here's what he's thinking. You know, if God's going to give me the silent treatment, let me at least go to Samuel. Samuel will tell me what to do. And so the witch of Endor seeks to conjure up Samuel, and to everyone's surprise, including her own, it it actually worked. Look at verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. There's a lot that's hard to understand in this passage. Different theologians throughout the ages have handled it differently. John Calvin says it was a delusion. Martin Luther says it was deception. You know, I think it's possible that that both of them are right. We can never discount either of those guys too easily. But we can't ignore the fact that the text says that there was a conversation that actually took place between Saul and Samuel. Look at verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God's turned away from me and answers me no more either by dreams, by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Now, the text indicates that Samuel was really summoned, but it wasn't by this woman. It wasn't by the powers 
of Satan, but by God himself, who had a message to deliver to Saul, which we'll look at in a moment. But there's a lot we don't understand about this. But what we do know is that when people are desperate and they cannot turn or will not turn to God, they'll turn almost anywhere. And yet Saul's heart remained hard the entire time to the only one who could actually help him. There's a sober warning here, and that is for those who harden their hearts towards God, who do not want to hear from God's Word, you may one day get what you want. And getting what you want proves to be the most horrifying thing imaginable. Calling out to God, and He does not answer you. What we see here is that just as Saul has forsaken God, God has now forsaken him because Saul so hardened his heart against God. Saul's in a pitiful and pitiable place here. At every turn, he's looking for help, help first from God, then from the witch and from Samuel. But then he gets word, and I want you to see what happens. The word that he gets, the message God has for him, is worse than he, than he ever imagined. And he moves from desperation now to doom. Look at verse 16. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. This is a reference back to Saul ignoring the command of God and not annihilating the Amalekites as God had said, and uh, that's why Saul had lost the kingdom back in chapter 15. It's a reminder to us of how big a deal sin is in the eyes of God, isn't it? it, it Saul said, you know, I, I wanted to sacrifice some of those things. I did it for you, God. God says, no, you disobeyed, and now you lose the kingdom. Let me quote Rick Phillips here. He said, Saul had treated God's command lightly, but God treated them as matters of greatest significance. Saul thought his sin to be a matter easily brushed aside, but God thought it deadly rebellion against his sovereign rule. Saul would not listen to God, and God will now not speak to Saul except to announce the arrival of his long-awaited judgment. And so, the message, the message that he was so desperate to get, he gets it, and it's worse than he imagined. It's a threefold message, message of doom. First, God's your enemy. You've set yourself against God. Second, you and your sons will die tomorrow. And third, God's going to give the Israelite army into the hand of the Philistines. But you know, underneath that, there's an even worse message. Saul, the hellish silence that you felt in your time of desperation, it's just a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. It's just a glimpse of the misery of eternity when you are going to call out for help and there will be no answer for you. I studied this passage and I think I understand now why we got interrupted from David's crisis now to Saul's crisis. Because Saul's crisis puts David's crisis in perspective. 
David's facing a terrible situation with enemies, and it is dangerous, and it could work out very badly. But you know, David, at least your soul is safe. That's really what matters. No matter what the the earthly circumstances may be, what matters most is that your soul is safe with God, and that you belong to God. Saul's earthly situation was, was just as perilous as David's but his eternal situation is the one that is really of greater concern. And so we, we can understand why we get this cliffhanger in verse 2 and we shift gears over to verse 3 to the story of Saul because it's as if God is saying to us, you know what real danger is? Real danger is for your heart to be away from the living God. For you to not trust in the living God for salvation. You know, that's... This passage sheds light on a reality that most of us do not give enough thought to. We face no greater danger than for our souls to not be right with God. Whatever earthly danger you're afraid of, whatever financial concerns you may have or relational concerns or health concerns, they are nothing compared to standing before the living God drenched in the stain of your own sins. We might defeat our earthly enemies. We might somehow survive even against the greatest of opponents in this world, but you cannot stand before God marked by your own sin and live to tell about it. You must repent and believe the gospel, the thing that Saul was unwilling to do. And if you will not, you'll be an eternal enemy of God, and there is no way to overcome that doom. There's no way to outrun it. David's situation was bad. That's what these two stories put in perspective for us. David's situation was bad, but Saul's is infinitely far worse. When man abandons God, God leaves man to his own devices. But when God abandons man, he assigns him the judgment of death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So how does Saul deal with it? He has just gotten literally the worst news possible. Not about the Philistines, but God is your enemy. That's the worst news possible. What do you do when you hear that? He's distraught, but he doesn't repent. Instead, he seeks distraction. That's our third point. Uh, We reach the end of the scene. Saul's miserable. He's filled with fear because of what Samuel's told him. And we're told to make matters worse, he hadn't had anything to eat or drink. So he's dehydrated. He's he's exhausted. And this witch is still there, this, this medium of indoor And she sees Saul's predicament. She sees that he's not eaten, that he's dehydrated, and he's a mess. And she says in verse 21, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go your way. So Saul did it. He listened to her. Isn't it incredible, by the way, he will not listen to the word of God, but he will listen to this crazy woman. 
And what she's doing is she's saying, you know, Saul, let's get your mind off of all this. Yes, there's a message of gloom and doom, but I've got a fattened calf here. Let's, let's go ahead and slaughter it. I'll throw you a feast fit for a king. And his motto becomes, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow, literally, we die. What a last supper. Uh, despairing, doomed, and with nowhere to turn except distraction. It's a great picture of our world. We may, for a moment, see somebody's conscience affected by their sins. They may think for a moment of their need of a Savior and yet distract themselves just enough to forget about it all. Saul's feasting here, but his eternal state is that he is one of the most pitiable characters in all of Scripture. Food and drink and all sorts of other pleasures can distract us from the peril of our soul. But beloved, one day the fleeting pleasures of this life will run out and we'll stand face to face with the God to whom we must give account. Just think about the difference for a second between this Last Supper of Saul and the Last Supper of our Lord Jesus. Saul living in the darkness and silence of his own sin. Jesus enduring darkness for sins he didn't commit. Jesus saying, take this cup from me and hearing only silence. Saul, with his hardened heart and in his rebellion against God, amuses himself to death as he waits for the hammer to drop, as he awaits a darkness that will last forever in hell. But the Lord Jesus, in obedience to the will of his Father, entered into that same darkness, that same condemnation, in order that he might take our sins away. The Bible tells us, he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus, from the pleasures and glories of heaven, entered into the same sort of darkness as Saul. Not because of his own sin, but to bear the weight of my sin and your sin and all who will believe in him. He refused the wine upon the cross so that he could drink undiluted the wrath of God to the dregs. He entered the darkness of the cross. Why? So that you and I might enter the life and light of his resurrection glory. You know, Saul's account ends with these words. They rose and went away that night. That feast is the closest Saul would come to heaven. When Jesus rose, it was in the light of the empty tomb, and it was by him rising that all who put their faith in him will know the joy of eternal life and his grace. How do we make application of this? We need to think about what do we do 
when God seems silent? What do you do when you pray and you don't get answers and God seems distant and there's all around what feels like darkness and depression? Just a couple of thoughts on that. One is keep on knocking. In Luke 18, Jesus told the parable of the importunate widow, a widow who needed justice from a judge, and he wouldn't grant it to her except that she kept knocking on his door, knocking and knocking and knocking. And if you remember that parable, the Lord says the point of that parable was to teach his disciples to always pray and not lose heart keep knocking because if an unjust judge will finally open the door how much more can we expect our great God to hear and answer our persistent prayers so first we keep knocking second we need to inspect our hearts and our lives we need to step back and consider whether there is some aspect of our lives that is creating distance between us and God now certainly this side of glory we're always going to have areas of sin in our lives that are displeasing to God, but we're specifically speaking about unconfessed, willful sin that creates a barrier between us and God. Psalm 66, 18, psalmist says, if if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, you wouldn't have listened. In other words, if my desire really wasn't for you, O God, but for my sin, and I'm just seeking to manipulate you, God doesn't listen to that. And so we need to inspect our hearts and our lives and repent of of hidden sins. They may be hidden from the world, but they are not hidden from the God who sees all things. Third, we need to claim Scripture. You know, all too often when people say they don't feel the presence of God, it's because they're, they're seeking some emotional experience rather than claiming and believing the promises of God. And you know what makes that worse is we, we have a culture now that lives for mountaintop highs of conferences and retreats and those things, and we've forgotten the normal, ordinary means of grace are to be our diet. And so people go from mountaintop to valley, mountaintop to valley. And what happens is that the normal, everyday, ordinary means of grace seem really mundane to us. What we need is not so much an experience as faith in God's promises. You know, there's a sense in which God is never silent. He's spoken to us in his word. And we can't, when we can't hear him, we can keep showing up day after day to look at what he's already said and done in his word to contemplate and memorize it until we realize that God is speaking to us. When God's silent, go to the Word, claim His promises, and then fourth, wait. The psalmist uh, was an expert in the waiting game. Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in the Lord. And then in verse 5 he says, my hope is from Him. The first step in hearing from God is often a willingness to patiently wait upon Him, trusting His character believing his goodness if we can lean on him while we wait then we can be sure even that waiting is a work of the holy spirit in us if he's giving us the grace to wait patiently 
then we can be sure that he's at work in our lives. One author said, waiting continually will be met and rewarded by God himself working continually. Where do you turn when there's nowhere to turn? Make sure it's to the only one who can help, to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we, as much as it grieves us, we're no strangers to Saul's experience here of at times being desperate and looking for hope in areas that cannot provide hope. Father, let us be a people who, under the weight of affliction, do not run to escapes or distractions or superstition, but we run and wait upon you.